Take out your Bible and open it, if you would, or your Jonah study booklet. Open it to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We are going to dive right into the text this morning, hit the ground running, picking up where Lloyd left off last week with the angry prophet. Remember, Jonah has finally gone to Nineveh. He preaches God's word to the people of Nineveh. They hear God's word. They repent. Every single person in the entire city of Nineveh believes in the God of Jonah. And because they turn from their sin, because they turn from their wickedness and evil, God doesn't destroy them. He offers them grace instead. Now pick it up with me where we were last week in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah responds, and this is what the text says. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Why, why is Jonah angry? Well, Lloyd said it last week. It's God's grace that makes Jonah angry. Look, look at verse 2. Here's where it's explained. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, here it is, that you are a gracious and compassionate God. That's why I'm angry. You're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness, and you're one who relented concerning the calamity that you said would come upon Nineveh. You offered them grace. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah is angry because God is gracious to the Ninevites, so angry that he wants to die. But what is it about God's grace that makes Jonah so angry? It's not a normal response to God's grace. Who, who gets mad at God's grace? Well, Jonah does. Well, why? Why does he get so angry about God's grace? Well, here's why. For Jonah, it's that the people of Nineveh are so undeserving of it. See, it's not just that God's a gracious God, it's, it's that God is gracious to the undeserving. We see that in the first part of verse two where Jonah says, I knew this is what you're going to do. I, I told you this is what you were going to do when we were back in Israel. That's why I ran to Tarshish to prevent it because the people of Nineveh, they don't deserve it. Now, let me ask you a question here. Do do the people of Nineveh, do, do they deserve God's grace? They're, they're recipients of it for sure, but, but do they actually deserve God's grace? Do they? No, absolutely not. They're some of the most wicked and evil people that we read about in this entire book. They deserve God's wrath. Jonah is actually right about what they deserve. So, so what's the disconnect for Jonah? Well, it's the very nature of grace itself. See, Jonah has a theological problem, a God problem with the doctrine of grace. Grace, by definition, is always undeserved. 
Undeserved favor for the unworthy. Undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. That's what grace is, and that is what's so terribly offensive to Jonah. It's that the undeserving are beneficiaries of God's favor. But let's take this just one step farther so that we can see way down deep into Jonah's heart. Why is Jonah so dead set against God's favor to the undeserving? This is where the real problem, the root problem, way down deep in Jonah's heart is exposed. Okay, start here. Would Jonah say that he's a recipient of God's grace. This is not a trick question. Would Jonah say that he is a recipient of God's favor? Think about that way, God's favor in his life. Yes, of course he would. He was just saved from drowning in the sea by a fish. He attributes that to God. Jonah is certainly a recipient of God's favor, but would Jonah say that he is undeserving of it? What's the story telling us? What does his prayer tell us? No, he would not. You see, the problem with how Jonah views the Ninevites is only the surface problem. The deeper issue is how Jonah views himself. How Jonah views his own heart. You know what the Bible calls someone who sees themselves as deserving of God's favor? You know what the Bible calls that? Self-righteousness. That's what the Bible calls that. And now we're getting to the heart of the matter, okay? One of the people that I read this week, one of the authors I read this week said it this way. He said, the only person who can despise grace, the only person who can hate grace is the one who thinks he's deserving of God's favor. The only person who can despise grace, the one who thinks he's deserving of it. Grace is offensive to the self-righteous. Grace will make the self-righteous angry, okay? And this isn't just a Jonah problem. This is, I've said this before, this, this is also an Israel problem. Jonah embodies the perspective of the whole nation, the, the Jewish people in his belief that God's favor to their nation is not a manifestation of his grace, but something that God is obligated to give them because of their righteousness. God is in some way beholden to the nation of Israel because of their righteousness. And herein lies the paradox with grace. See, to receive grace, to actually embrace the fullness of God's grace is going to require that Jonah lay down his self-righteousness and admit that he too is undeserving, which is something that he wouldn't do something that the nation of Israel wouldn't do, and something that I believe I would suggest is very difficult for you and I to actually do as well. In fact, I'll say it this way. I think that Jonah's problem and Israel's problem could be our problem too. And this scene is a fascinating scene. It's fascinating in this way. God doesn't tell Jonah that he has a problem. God decides to show Jonah that he has a problem. 
This scene is a whole lot like a parable of Jesus where Jesus takes a, something from common everyday life and he uses it to teach a deeper spiritual truth. That, that's what's true here. God takes, he, he takes a plant and a worm and a wind and he shows Jonah his foolish heart and he heaps on pile after pile of his undeserved grace. So let's look at this scene together and pick it up with me, if you will, in verse five. We'll read to verse eight if you're in the Jonah study booklet. This is on page 24. Then Jonah went out from the city and he set east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than Life, God, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of this word, your word. We ask that you would empower us by your spirit to understand it well. We ask that you would change us more and more into the image of Christ as we take this deep spiritual truth and apply it in our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, we need to unpack this just a little bit, don't we? So Jonah leaves Nineveh, he takes off, he's running again, this time he stops, he camps on what was probably a hillside, some vantage point overlooking the city of, of Nineveh to the east of the city, and he, he camps there to do two, two things, to sulk, to pout, right, and, and to watch, to watch the city hoping for its demise, and it's hot in the desert. You know, Nineveh is modern day Iraq. And so it's hot in the desert and it can be hot. It was hot in this case for, for Jonah. And so Jonah just grabs whatever he can find and he, he builds a temporary shelter to provide him some shade, a, a shady spot from which to watch from. And, and it's here on the hillside o overlooking the city that was just transformed by God's grace that God is going to show his prophet that that same undeserved grace applies to him too. And so God appoints three things to do that. He appoints a plant. This plant grows quickly. It covers Jonah's temporary shelter as big, broad leaves. It blocks out every ray of sunlight. And we see in verse six that Jonah is extremely happy about the plant. Now that's interesting because this is the first time in the whole book that Jonah's happy, right? exceedingly happy, deliriously happy is what that word extremely means. It's the same word that is used about his anger in verse one. So in verse one, Jonah is exceedingly angry. And in verse six, Jonah is exceedingly happy, which creates an interesting contrast, doesn't it? That Jonah is exceedingly angry about hundreds of thousands of people that turn to God. And he's exceedingly happy about a plant that provides him Shade. We'll see more on that next week. And then second, God appoints a, a worm. And this, this is a worm that, that comes at dawn the very next day. And it's a worm that attacks the plant with a vengeance. 
a worm that destroys the plant. He, he, he destroys those big, beautiful leaves. They, they wither and they fall to the ground. And, and it's interesting to note this about the worm that while destruction is a theme throughout the book, the destruction of the ship on the sea, the destruction of Nineveh, potential destruction for Nineveh, that the only thing in the book that's actually destroyed is this plant by a worm. Just interesting to observe that. And then finally, we see that God appoints a wind, a scorching east wind that begins to blow when the sun gets up high enough to begin beating down on Jonah's head. And most identify this wind as the Sirocco. It's a natural phenomenon in the Near East that that this wind begins to blow down from the mountains in Iran. The temperature spikes, the humidity gets sucked out, it drops, and the wind begins to blow up to 60 miles per hour. It's a hot and oppressive wind, and so oppressive in this case that we see Jonah probably dehydrated begins to get faint. Now, the plant the worm and the wind, they are three of five things that God appoints in the book. Do you remember the other two, what God sends, what God appoints? You remember this in chapter one, what does God send on the sea? Storm, right? And then in chapter two, into chapter one and into chapter two, what does God appoint to save Jonah? He appoints a fish, right? So we've got a storm and a fish and then a plant, a worm and a wind. And this is what I'm suggesting this morning. This is what I believe that the text is showing. I'll say it this way, that all five divine appointments, all the ways that God moves toward, initiates toward Jonah in this book are actually all five acts of his grace, all five. Now, I want us to think about that for just a moment. And and I want us to think about that from Jonah's perspective, okay? Let's just think about it for a minute. The the storm, we'll, we'll start there. From Jonah's perspective, was that a positive or negative experience? Not a trick question. What, what was that experience like for Jonah? Negative, all day long. Of course, it was a huge negative That was not fun. The sailors, the storm was so massive, the sailors themselves who sail on that sea every day were scared in this storm. Storm was so strong that it was breaking the boat to pieces. That is a huge negative. Go go to the fish. The fish, from Jonah's perspective, was that a positive or a negative experience? What do you think? Yeah, we're a little soft on this one. It's kind of both. (laughs) It's like... I'm not sure. You could argue that from either way. I'm sure, sure that the fish was, belly of the fish was not a very positive experience for three days. I'm imagining seawater and partly digested food and stomach acid, right? Like this is not a positive experience, but it was the means for Jonah's salvation. It did save his life. So I'm going positive here. That's a positive, better alive than dead, okay? How, how about the plant? Positive or name? What is it? Easy one, positive. The plant is positive. Jonah said it himself. The plant made him comfortable. It made him happy. God's shade was better than Jonah's shade. That's a huge positive. How about the worm? What is it? Negative. You bet Jonah hated that dead gum worm. 
worm took his shade away, right? It took his shade away. That sun beat down hot. That sun burned his face. It burned his body. And then, of course, the wind, positive or negative, negative all day long. That, that wind hurt. That wind was painful. That wind dehydrated Jonah. That wind was something that Jonah despised. Now, when I look up here at the board, it's easy for me to look at the fish and the plant and see God's grace. It is. Like, yeah, of course that's God's grace. Delivered him from the sea. He provided him shade when he didn't deserve it. Jonah had a horrible attitude in both instances. And God's like, no problem. Here's, here's comfort. Here's provision. Here's protection. Here's safety. Here's help in your time of need. That's, that's grace all day long. No, no problem with us seeing that as grace. But, but what about the storm and the worm and the wind? How is it that we see those things as God's grace? Well, there's a phrase in the text that can help us, and, and it's found in verse 6, right? In the middle of verse 6, God appoints the plant, grows up over Jonah to be shade over his head. Here's the key phrase, to deliver him from his discomfort. That is a pregnant Phrase. Now, now, certainly it's his immediate discomfort. The plant provides shade to his hot body to protect him from the sun. Certainly that's true, but it's also much more than that. And an understanding of the words here will help us to see that. That word for discomfort is the Hebrew word ra'ah, R-A-A-H. We've seen that word before. We've actually talked about it up here, I think, five times in eight messages. Why? It's the word that's used throughout the story to refer to wickedness and evil. So it refers to the wickedness of Nineveh, and it refers to the wickedness of the people of Nineveh, and it refers to the calamity that God's going to send to Nineveh. Last week, Lloyd talked about that same word referring to Jonah's anger. It's used throughout the book. So this phrase, to deliver him from his discomfort, is actually literally translated to deliver him from his evil, to deliver him from his wickedness. And it may be that our, our study booklet says it the best. This is on page 24. There's a note under verse six, right at the very bottom. It says this, discomfort or evil, Hebrew word ra'ah, refers both to Jonah's outer discomfort and his inner evil, his inner evil. So these things, all, all these things on the board, all these things that we just look like are, are not just God's means to deliver him from his physical discomfort, but they are also God's means, his grace to deliver Jonah from his spiritual discomfort. Literally to save him from the evil that resides in his own heart. Remember, I said this scene is like a parable. So God is showing Jonah physically what's true about him spiritually. So he makes him comfortable, and then he makes him uncomfortable to show him the reality that's way down in here, to show him his ultimate discomfort, his sin, 
his self-righteousness and to deliver him, to save him from it. That, men and women, is grace. It's grace. It's grace. Uncomfortable? Yes. Painful? Yes. Difficult? Very. Severe? Sometimes. Grace? Always. You cannot put God's grace in a box. You just can't do it. It's unruly. It's unkept. It keeps us off balance. It comes in every kind of form and shape and circumstances. Some things that make us feel good, that are pleasant and comfortable and make us happy. Other things that make us feel terrible, that are painful and difficult and confusing. In fact, we could say this. We could say God's grace is expressed in all the ways he moves toward us. All the ways he initiates toward us. All the ways he pursues us. All the ways he makes himself known to us. All his efforts to deliver us from our inner discomfort. His grace is endless. His grace is relentless. His grace is who he is. Last weekend, I spent Friday night in the hospital with one of our daughters, and, and she's, she's doing okay this week, so don't worry about her. But I spent last Friday night with her in the hospital, and she'd been battling some stomach pain and some nausea for about six weeks. A very frustrating experience and very difficult to get the right treatment to get things figured out. We tried several things. And finally, after kind of a fourth x-ray that Friday afternoon, they said, just come on in and you need to come in now because there's a bed available now and, and just come in and we'll, we'll see if we can get this thing figured out. And so we're scrambling. And I'll, I'll just tell you this, Friday afternoon about five o'clock, there was nothing about that experience that felt like God's grace. I mean, nothing. Like, I was about as far from God's grace being an option for the moment as you could possibly be. There's nothing about my fear, about what was going on with her, frustration with the care that we had gotten, my anxiety about what I'm going to do with my other two kids in 30 minutes. They wanted us to come stay 24 hours. I, it's just like, I, well, I don't, I, there's nothing about that that felt like God's grace until... God used my daughter's pain in a night on that couch that they somehow call a bed in a hospital, that couch, a night on that couch to show me what matters most and to show me how easy it can be for me to get so busy with all these things I feel like I need to get done, all these things I've got to do and miss the people that matter the most the souls of the people in my own family, my daughter, my wife. And I'll just tell you this, when I left the next evening about the same time, I, I walked out of there having experienced through a huge, we'll just write it up here, hospital is negative, through a huge negative God's grace. I walked out not ever wanting to experience that again, but wanting more of God. Why? Because of what he showed me in the context of that by his grace. And what blows me away about this passage, it just absolutely strips my gears, is that no matter how, what Jonah does, no matter 
how long he pouts, no matter what Jonah says or how angry Jonah gets, God never stops pursuing him. Never. God never gives up on Jonah. Jonah ignores him. Jonah runs. Jonah disobeys. And then it gets worse. Jonah gets angry with God. Jonah lashes out. Jonah wants to die. And it's like, what's God going to do now? Is he going to disown him? Is he going to reject him? Is he going to stop loving him? Is he going to destroy him? What's God going to do now? None of that. He's going to keep pursuing him. He's relentless. Nothing that Jonah can do to make him quit. How many times in this little short four-chapter book does God pursue Jonah's? How many times? I don't know how long it was from the ship on the Mediterranean Sea to the hillside outside of Nineveh. I don't know, a few weeks, but maybe a couple of months at, at the very most. And it's already like a broken record in Jonah's life. Jonah runs, God pursues. Jonah is drowning, God is there. Jonah gets mad, God engages. Jonah wants to die, God paints him a picture over and over and over in a few short weeks. It's hard to imagine God's relentless pursuit of us over the course of a lifetime. Hard to imagine. It really is. And I'm not talking about his pursuit of those who don't know him. He does pursue them. I'm talking about his relentless pursuit of those who do. Have you noticed in the book who God spends the most time pursuing? It's not the Ninevites, not the sailors. He cares about, he's crazy about them. He's pursuing them too, but he spends most of his time in this book pursuing one man, his man. Why? Because grace in a person's life is not a one-time thing. It's not. Christians need grace. Bob Diffenbaugh writes, the principle of grace by which we are saved is the governing principle of God's dealing in all of our lives. So it's been said we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. And it's true. We need the gospel of grace every single minute of every single day. The real question here to me is, it's like, when is God gonna stop pursuing us? <laughs> when is he gonna stop trying to deliver us from what we deserve? And when are we gonna lay down our pride and actually embrace the fullness of his grace that he's offering in all these ways? Ways that he's pursuing us by his grace, his relentless pursuit of us, stuff that feels positive and negative to us. And if there is something for us that's standing in the way of his grace, that keeps us at arm's length from his grace, I'll just say this, it's likely some form of self-righteousness, some subtle form of self-righteousness in us that's not too different from Jonah. That's what's true in my life. And this is what I battle every day. I think this, if I do the right thing 
in the right way, then I expect it all to work out right. Like I expect it all to work out in the way that it should. It should meet my expectation if I do the right thing in the right way. That that should meet my expectation. And my expectation for God's grace in response to that, God's favor in response to that, is not one of these negative kind of things. It feels like one of these positive kind of things. That's that's just the, the way that I live. Why? Because I think I deserve that because I've done some right thing in the right way. That's what I think I, I deserve. And so when I consider this in my own life, when I, when I think about it, it's like I don't consciously think that, but I, I live that way. And how, I, how do I know that, that I live that way? That gets exposed when something doesn't happen like I expect it to happen. It's terrible theology. It's terrible It in some way makes God beholden to me for some feeble attempt to do something right. And it's the very theology that sent me spiraling into depression six years ago. Miserable, just like Jonah. Anytime we make God beholding to us for anything, we demonstrate the self-righteousness of Jonah. So reading my Bible could be self-righteousness if I think it earns me some notch in my account with God. And sharing my faith can be self-righteousness if I expect God to bless me for the rest of the day. Anytime I resist repentance or I resist forgiveness because I think I'm in the right. Anytime God takes something away that I think should be mine for the rest of my life, anytime I frown on someone who I think is undeserving, anytime I withdraw, disengage, sulk or pout, get angry about something small and insignificant, it's likely that self-righteousness is at the root of my heart. And there's only one way to root that out. It's to admit that we are undeserving, and it's to experience the fullness of God's grace. See, self-righteousness gets destroyed by grace. Self-righteousness that is destroyed by grace is replaced by the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's ultimate act of grace is sending his son. He is the ultimate remedy for our ultimate discomfort, and it's alien to us. It's foreign to us because it cannot come from us. It cannot be self-righteousness. It has to come from outside of us, and it's given to us. Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is given to us by his grace that we might stand in the greatness of his grace, the greatest gift ever given and be reconciled to the God who will not stop pursuing us, saved from our self-righteousness by his death for our sin and delivered from our discomfort. Everything that we need, everything that we long for is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And we need the gospel of of grace every single minute of every single day. So what? In what ways is God moving towards you by grace right now?
In what ways is God pursuing you? And how are you going to respond to it? Will you stiff arm it like Jonah does, just kind of keep it at bay? Or will you admit that you're undeserving, that you need his grace, and embrace it, whatever it might look like? Whatever it might look like. This scene ends with all kinds of tension in it, doesn't it? It's unresolved. God's still pursuing Jonah. Jonah's like, I I just want to die. Forget this. I'm out. Just, I want to die. Nothing's changed from where we stopped last week. And here's what's interesting about this whole book. What's true today is true next week. The story is left unfinished. It's left undone. And it's left undone because the author wants to put that same tension right in our laps. He wants to leave it with us. What are you going to do with God's lavish, extravagant, extraordinary, unruly, unkept, ridiculous grace in your life? So I'll leave it with you. And I want you to take just a minute to consider that question for you. Father, we can't read the book of Jonah and get away from your grace. Your grace to all people, Ninevites and sailors. And you're very specific, very abnormal grace for Jonah that's just as abnormal in our lives as well. We thank you for it. We thank you for the things that feel good to us by your grace. And we thank you for the things that are hard to us. It's often that we grow more in our intimacy with you through your severe grace than it is the other. So thanks for your grace to save us, to deliver us, not just to faith in Christ, but day in and day out. Thanks for your grace to sustain us for each morning that comes. And thanks for your grace to draw us into deep trust and intimacy with you. It's in your son's name that I pray, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand. We're gonna sing our benediction. We were singing it last night. God's grace is greater than our sin. And I thought it a perfect fit to conclude our service. And so I'm gonna ask you to lift your voices with us. And I'm gonna invite you into that by reading this quote. This is a quote that I read for the first time this week, and it's instantly moved up into my top two or three. I don't think it's one that will leave me. So if you're at fellowship over the next 10 or 20 years, you might hear this a hundred (laughs) times. That'll be just fine. Here's what it says. It says, God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. His grace is greater than our sin. Would you lift your voices with me this morning?